to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. Our website, as always, is jmp.princeton.edu. Our Twitter handle is at Madison Program, and you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our guest today is Erica Bakioki. Erica is the founder and director of the Wollstonecraft Project at the Abigail Adams Institute, as well as a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She is not only a legal scholar, but one specializing in equal protection jurisprudence and feminist legal theory. Her latest book is The Rights of Women, Reclaiming a Lost Vision, which is about the philosophy of Mary Wollstonecraft. Given this background, I can't think of a better person to delve into the difficult but timely topic of abortion and feminism. And with no further ado, let's dig in. Erica, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm going to start just at the very beginning with you. So when I was in college, uh, the university put a really intense focus on sex. And the narrative that we were all provided with uh, was the key to solving everyone's mental health issues was treating every sexual desire as healthy, and to use a sort of tired phrase, smashing the patriarchy. Uh, And of course, for my generation and below, mental health issues are really serious uh, and honestly somewhat ubiquitous. But it seems like in your personal experience, focusing really intensely on sex and patriarchy actually made you much less happy. Can you talk me through that a little bit and what happened? Sure. I mean, of course, it's a long story, but happy happy to share. So I grew up in a um, family in which my mother was actually married and divorced three times by the time I reached my 19th birthday. So I um, didn't have my father around, um, you know, from the time I was four um, and then didn't have any, you know, male father figure from the time I was in about eighth grade. And I, um, from a very young age, um, sort of, I would say, just started acting out (laughs) Um, from that, what I then <clears throat> really in sort of the healing process later took to be um, the significant absence of um, a male, you know, a father figure in my life. Um, and so um, engaged, you know, without getting into details um, and pretty self-destructive behavior, both substance abuse and then uh, yeah. kind of everything that goes with that for a young girl. <laughs> um And it really sent me into a spiral, not only the divorces, but also then that kind of behavior and also actually suicides of two friends, two male friends. So it was a very tumultuous time in my life, um, in my, uh, I'd say, you know, all the way from about 13 into my, um, into about 19 was, was just very hard. Um, and so by the time I got to college, I, um, really was, um, had, stopped acting out um, in this really significant ways, especially um, when my second friend took his own life. But even before that, had started going to like 12 step meetings, had started praying to kind of a God as I understand God <laughs> kind of thing. And um, and really relied on those meetings and that kind of um, generalized sort of prayer, um, sort of spirituality for like my day to day sanity. So mm. when I got to college, I was a college athlete um, and really just plopped myself into the women's center on campus because I wasn't really interested in doing what my fellow athletes were doing, which was basically getting drunk every weekend or whatever. Right. <laughs> so I and I had become also um 
I'd, I'd become very introspective in the 12 step um, process. And so was doing a lot of reading and like self-help, that kind of stuff. And so really was looking for kind of, I would say, a worldview or a philosophical anchor for my experiences. And I would say that, you know, feminism of sorts really um, did that for me for a time. And so I took some women's studies classes, um, was a sociology major, um, and and really just bonded very um uh, deeply with a lot of the the feminists on campus. So at the women's at what we then called the Women's Center, I think it's probably called something else now, um, and was one of the leaders there. And so what I came to see, though, as I was taking these classes, was that I I very strongly um, believed in, um, you know, the kind of feminist kind of quest for, you know, women's rights, freedom and equality and all that. But it seemed to me that this um, kind of linkage between that, this idea of equality and especially freedom with um, mm-hmm. the sexual revolution and kind of the idea of, you know, a libertine or casual sex ethic yeah. that was going on all around me that I'd experienced, um, that it, it just seemed like these two things didn't really go that well together. And so I became sort of skeptical of the hookup culture that was going on on campus And it just seemed to me in general that like free love was never for women particularly free, that there was more emotional um, turmoil after casual sex, that, of course, there was, you know, the risk of pregnancy. Um, There was the need to uh, find, you know, contraception, like there were all sorts of things that men just didn't have to do. And so it this is when I started, you know, really kind of seeing what I now call reproductive asymmetry, but the deep inequalities like in sex there's just heterosexual sex there's a deep inequality yeah and um and so i i just felt like feminism wasn't responding to that well and so i was pulling away from feminism at the same that kind of secular 1970s feminism at at the same time i began to read um people like marianne glendon who of course is a good friend of the madison uh program there at princeton um, and just started to open my eyes to an entirely different way of seeing the world um, where there are actually responsibilities <laughs> for um, for activities in which we engage. And so I guess that's where I started on a really entirely different trajectory um, yeah. that led me into, you know, study political philosophy, sort of abandoned sociology and, and women's studies, although those have, of course, come in uh, in handy in my in my work today. But um, and started to get really deeply into questions of, um, mm. you know, human nature, um, questions of human ends. So I was reading Plato and Aristotle with some um, Straussian uh, teachers at Middlebury College, kind of fell into the hands of these teachers who really, these professors who really took seriously um, the the ancient thinkers as potentially offering us some wisdom today. And that was really relevatory to me. Read, you know, John Henry Newman, read... Um, Others just about the the um, you know the the work of education, like what is it to be an educated person? What is it to be liberally educated? And and this is the last thing I'll say. It's just I became convicted that um, that this idea and kind of getting to your question exact you know precisely is this idea of following our des- every desire is really mm. a way in which we are imitative of the animals and we're not acting as ra- the rational creatures that we are. And that freedom is really the capacity to um, to choose against 
yeah. uh, or to, um, you know, for, for reason, that highest principle in us to order our passions um, so that they are not dominating us. Um, you know, I think Hume was wrong that reason is the slave of the passions. In fact, to be, a, you know, to be a, to be a human being at the, you know, to live as, um, as, you know, our kind of best um, humanity is to, for reason to order the passions. And that's really the way the ancients thought about it, the way the pre-moderns thought about it. And so I find I've, um, I uh, am, 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 my work is really seeing the, taking those really ancient and pre-modern uh, insights, that wisdom, and finding a way to th synthesize it with this um, feminist, um, you know, quest for, for equality and freedom. And that, of course, looks very different when uh, it's um, sorted through with the lens of that ancient wisdom, I would say. So I've had a lot of very interesting conversations with people who have kind of worked in multiple fields as you have going from like women's and feminist studies into a more political philosophical field. And I also majored in two very different fields. Um, and I'm wondering, because it seems like different fields view human motivation and how the world works in really different ways. Uh, and a lot of people kind of in our circles and who listen to this podcast have a lot of familiarity with the way that political scientists view those questions. But can you maybe provide uh, some more detail and context on how women's, the women's studies field views those questions? Because I think in a lot of ways, the way that they view that is really influential on, you know, what a lot of women encounter at college and, and how people in general view the world around them. Yeah, I mean, that's a fascinating and sort of rich question that would require probably more nuance, more nuance than yeah. I can um, provide in the sense that my book, The Rights of Women, um, treats really legal and political theory um, right. from Mary Wollstonecraft, but doesn't get into sort of the depth of someone like a Simone de Beauvoir um, or others like a Judith Butler who have really right. uh, constructed and then deconstructed kind of <laughs> feminist thinking, feminist thought. Right. Um, so I think, and I think it's a real, you know, there's been, whether it's the many waves of feminism or today, I mean, the real, I think, um, way in which there's all sorts of interior, internal contradictions within feminism, um, all sorts of tensions. So right. that said, I mean, I think there is certainly a way in which um, de Beauvoir's, you know, work has been most fundamental mm. in shaping, I mean, her philosophically, and then I would say Margaret Sanger um, in a more political way, in the, in the sense mm. that you know, for the ancients and for that first wave of the women's movement, which I talk so much about um, in in my book, The Rights of Women, and even for Mary Wollstonecraft, there is this um, strong sense that as rational creatures, we do want to live according to reason and therefore order our passions. And that that is just like something that is basic to who right. we are and ought to strive to be. Like the idea of working toward um, virtue and wisdom as the highest capacities in human beings, um, as kind of our excellences, human excellences, is is just assumed um, all the way through. I mean, you start to see Elizabeth Cady Stanton push back at some of that, but that's really, I would say, assumed by many of those early early women's rights thinkers. So when you come to someone like, and, and so because of that, um, they saw their women's immiseration for both 
you know, Wollstonecraft and those early women's rights advocates was really the want of virtue in themselves, but in men particularly. So the want of male chastity was especially right. something that caused um, immiseration. It was this kind of a sexual presumption that men could have women because, well, legally, legally there was, um, right. you know, you know, this, the sexual prerogative, right? So when you come to Sanger and, and, and let me just say too, that there's a way in which all of their reforms are moral mm. and social reforms that they take the sexual asymmetries between men and women as a given, and they take the responsibilities of motherhood and fatherhood as a given. And so they mm. want to have society be more responsive to, and, and justly responsive to those asymmetries. So women are treated as fully women, but also fully equals in right. society, bringing them into education, the professions, the franchise and all that as women. So when you get to Sanger, it's a really interesting thing. And she, with the modern project writ large, basically says, no, the problems aren't have anything to do with virtue. I mean, she would never even use that word, but that, <laughs> but that it's really the female body. And you see the same thing then happen um, and really be theorized mm. by de, de Beauvoir, where, you know, um, where there's this understanding that it's really like women are sex are, are socially constructed um, and the female sex is something to sort of be free of that it's female the female body our biology for both these thinkers I mean obviously the Beauvoir in much more sophisticated way than Sanger but Sanger in a very consequential way in terms of in terms of you know engineering um, reproductive um, technologies in order to really kind of fix women to be more like men. Right. Mm. Um, and so I think, and, and what I'm getting to at is really the way in which social, that, that there's a real fundamental way in which the idea of social construction, the idea that society is really what constructs our view of mm. women, our view of human excellence, that it's not something that nature can teach us anything about, but that, you know, that, that it's, you know, society out there, the patriarchy that is creating expectations for men and women. Now, I think there's obviously some truth to that. And that's where, where I, you know, agree with um, someone like Ginsburg when we get to, when we get to the discrimination, but, but I think that leaves no room for right. whether there is something about nature, even our common human nature, not even getting to like differences in the male and female. Um, but, but, does our common human nature provide any, you know, what we call sort of telos, any purpose, any ends for us? And for those early thinkers, they would say, yes, like there are ways in which we ought to strive for particular excellences and that there are there are things that are more, you know, that are true, good and beautiful. And that next wave really shuns that idea altogether and basically proposes the view that the true, the good, and the beautiful are really just socially constructed. And so that's when it all kind of, in my view, falls apart, although they do give us some tools right. for thinking about the ways in which, um, uh, you know, uh, certain societies do, um, you know, hold women back because of their particular idea of a particular nature. So it's complex. I mean, I think you've got to sort of You've got to take um, the insights from yeah. some thinkers and then leave behind what doesn't accord with your experience of reality, I guess I would say. Interesting. 
and in your book, to, to continue kind of on this topic of virtue, you said something very interesting. And you were talking about how at the time that Wollstonecraft was writing, virtue for women was considered kind of purely in sexual terms. And the way that you describe more modern feminists does kind of remind me of that in the way that what it means to be a woman is like such a purely sexual concept. Uh, do you think there's any parallel there? Is this like a horseshoe theory kind of, kind of situation? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's actually, that's a good, that's a good insight. Right. So there's this way in which she's pushing back against the idea of, well, you know, especially kind of a Rousseauian idea, yeah. but just that, that, you know, when you talk about women's virtue, you're just talking about chastity right. and purity. Right. And so what she's saying is like, no, <laughs> women are human beings, rational creatures, just like men. And so they ought to be expected and therefore formed um, educationally and morally to live out all of the virtues. Um, and, th and they may instantiate those virtues differently. I mean, what she talks about is that, you know, there may be different duties mm. um, for men and women. She, in fact, affirms that there are different duties for men and women, especially in motherhood and fatherhood but that they ought to carry out those duties with the same human virtues, yeah. the same human principles. Right. And so is there a way in which, you know, um, you kind of come back to this like high sexualizing of women yeah. when you, when you collapse the idea of a rational nature, right. When you collapse <laughs> nature and common human ends. Um, then, yeah. I mean, I think you end up with Hume, right. Right. That, Reason, reason just becomes this rationalization for our passions. And so in our day, we've certainly elevated the sexual passions to be, you know, we have to fulfill the sexual right. passions, as you mentioned at the beginning, or we're not, or we have to express our sexual passions or our sexuality, or we're not like living as our kind of best selves. Yeah. If we do that, we're, we're somehow repressing something. Um, and so, yeah, there's a way in which, um, uh, yeah, you know, Rousseau kind of wins, right? <laughs> um, which is, you know, the great work of like a Carl Truman who shows yeah. his, um, rise and fall of the modern self that like really Rousseau is kind of the winner in modern yeah. modernity. Um, that, 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 and, and, and really, yeah. And really kind of the romantic turn. I mean, even with Wollstonecraft's own life, she, you can kind of see her in different stages, but I think of, I'm talking about and commending to people, the Wollstonecraft in her first and second kind of early stages in her life, but she does also take a romantic turn at the end of her life. And I think some despair after the French revolution and some personal things that happened for her. And yeah, so there's a way in which when you reduce um, nature to kind of human passions, right. like even all the way down in a Hobbesian sense, right. That we are just human beings are just kind of our passions, right. Right. <laughs> right. That it can be very dangerous. It can be very dangerous, especially for women. So I think there's a way in which Wollstonecraft, you know, will end up, um, conflicting with Wollstonecraft. Um, so anyway, yeah, no, I think that's a really, really good insight that you've, that you've brought out. Yeah. And your answer kind of draws on another question that I've been stewing on, uh, because the feminist movement, um, you know, it's taking kind of a turn toward the, toward the pornographic, like in terms of, you know, this intense focus on sexual desire and satisfying sexual desire, um, and an earlier generation of feminism, um, which was much more focused on like getting women careers and looking at women in kind of a, a less sexual sense, it seems like has kind of been supplanted. Um, and so I'm wondering, I mean, why do you think that is? Um, and, and like, how did that happen? <laughs> Gosh, how did that happen? 
Um, and there's probably, you know, I have to say, there's probably others who can speak more to second wave feminism. Yeah. And, you know, so I, I get into, again, the legal theorists um, more and the political kind of thinkers. So like Betty Friedan right. and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, far less than kind of these other thinkers. I mean, I, I would say, um, and so to, to talk to someone like Abigail Favalli would be, yeah, would be really good um, because she's able, she's able to contend with those, those thinkers a bit better than I am and sort of the sexual turn. So what I would say is, yeah, you know, it's like in the 1980s, as, a, as your, I'm sure your listeners um, either know or remember, um, you have like a Catherine McKinnon and an Andrea Dorkin really pushing back against um, pornography, against prostitution as inherently demeaning for women. And I just think that that's, that's just factually true. <laughs> you know, Catherine McKinnon um, had this excellent, I think, New York Times article um, in the last probably year or so, um, where she is just talking about the idea of sex workers, that, you know, what they're engaging and what prostitutes are engaging in is neither sex nor work um, in their yeah. most dignified yeah. sense, right? So, and I think she still is a voice to go to. And in fact, I, I find her work, um, you know, there's the horseshoe again, right? right. Like the way she understands, um, you know, even the way abortion freed up, as she talked about, um, you know, uh, heterosexual availability, you know, she says in the in the um, privacy of bedrooms consent, uh, you know, is presumed with with the abortion license. So, I mean, I think she's been really helpful um, in in uh, that kind of um, and also the way in which she sees and, and a lot of these, I mean, even a Camille Paglia, like the one. Yeah, these, I love her. <laughs> these. Yeah. You know, like they yeah. really get they, they they don't they're not euphemistic in the way they see um, the female body. And um, I shouldn't say euphemistic. I mean, they don't they're not trying to escape the female body. Right. So they want to talk about the nature of sex and it's. Um, and its yeah. consequences for women in a really serious way. And I think what you have is there's a way in which abortion has become, you know, in, in law, we talk about reliance, but there's a way in which the sexual revolution, which, you know, in it, it, it really relies in a profound way on the capacity, not only, you know, to have contraceptive sex, but to have this abortion backed right. contraceptive sex. So women can have sex just like men. And so then this kind of consequence, consequence free, like this idea that we have a really putative right to non-procreative sex, right? So like consequence free sex is a right. And so, and it's, as you've said, like part of our sexual expression. And so we ought to be engaging in it all the time. And then we have these women, I think you see them all over college campuses and that's why you're seeing some backlash now, both like 10 years ago with a lot of books on the casual sex culture, again, now with, you know, Christine Emba's book, Rethinking right. Sex, with my friend uh, Louise, Perry, Louise Perry's book out of um, the UK, A Case Against the Sexual Revolution, which will drop in the United States, I think, mm -hmm. in September. Really impressive. Just both of these really pushing back against um, the idea that, that the consequences of sex are the same for men and women. And, um, you know, I think I think that it's really a head in the sand kind of mentality yeah. and not paying attention to women who are not happy about, it. I mean, whether yeah. you look at the studies that show us that women enjoy sex better in a committed relationship or whether you just listen to how they talk about the situation on college campuses, yeah. they're not all good with this idea that, you know, 
as my daughter was told in her freshman orientation at a Catholic college in New England, you, all you freshmen have a right to sexual pleasure and, you know, add, add alcohol right. <laughs> and stir, add alcohol, add the expectation for women to wear very few clothing, stir, and you get, um, you know, sexual assault pretty yeah, fast um, on college campuses. So it's a really, it's a naivety, I think, about about undisciplined male desire, um, about the impact of testosterone on men. Um, I think it's a real naive way of going. And this is where Camille Paglia just kind of sets a lot of people straight. And of course, no one wants to listen to her, but there's other, you know, others who are, of course, making the same, <laughs> same points as well. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting, like, you know, when you talk about uh, like a, a male expectation of sex for women, even within my lifetime, how the discussion about pornography went from, oh, pornography, like, exploits women to women are also allowed to watch pornography. Yeah, right. Isn't that right. great? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it, it's a good segue into kind of discussing abortion, which has been so in the news recently with the Supreme Court decisions, because I think that abortion has had kind of a similar evolution, and you've talked about this really powerfully in a number of sources, but has had a similar evolution where in the early feminist movement it was viewed as bad, and that it was viewed not necessarily as neutral, but at least as kind of a necessary plug. And at this point, I, I, you know, people sometimes deny this, but I think personally, it seems as though it's certainly presented in a way in which it's just a positive good period. And there's a lot of stuff on social media saying that women shouldn't need a good reason to have an abortion. It should just be a right, right. something they can do any time. It's, it's a positive thing that women should engage in. Um, and I'm wondering if you can lend a little bit of kind of historical perspective to, to what abortion has looked like as a topic in the women's movement and how we got to where we are today. Yeah, I mean, the fascinating part for people who will listen <laughs> is the the shift. I mean, so let's so we can go back all the way to the first wave. Yeah. And then we can um, talk about the shift that you're showing us in the second and then whether you want to say third, fourth, whatever waves. But, yeah. you know, so the first wave, you have this yeah. real moral opposition to abortion for for a number of reasons, one of which is because they understood now <laughs> I am aghast at, and, and I keep seeing this, at the way in which there are still some pro-choicers who deny that a human being's life begins at fertilization. And so I actually was yeah. on a um, webinar last night with the uh, Catherine um, Colbert, who argued Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and I just put this to her, like, you know, do you dispute the scientific consensus that um, human life begins at the early stage of fertilization or whatever. And she just said, no, that's not true. There's no, there's no scientific consensus with regard to when a human being's life begins. And then she started talking about Jew Jews having, you know, believing that life begins at birth and therefore, you know, and I kept thinking like, why are we talking about religion here? I'm talking about science, you know? Totally, and so, totally. And so what's fascinating is that there's the advances that helped us to understand when human life begins happened in the 19th century. I mean, so now we have ultrasounds where we can see very clearly like into the womb and we can see this, you know, what the human being looks like in the earliest stages of development, right? Um, and we have, but when the microscope is, you know, comes to be, <laughs> there's, the ability to then see that when yeah. the egg and sperm yeah, yeah, fuse, yeah. there's a new distinctive self-directing human organism, right? And so, so with this, these advances in embryology, um, which is, you know, part of why, you know, in the 19th century, we, 
there was a push for um, statutes that then protected unborn human beings all the way from the beginning of their life, from fertilization, from conception. Prior to that, it was a view that like around quickening. Now we know evidentiary speaking that there's a human being, but really like the idea is whenever, whenever you can tell medically speaking that there's a human being, you ought to protect it, right? And this is exactly what those early women's rights advocates understood. So they first understood that Abortion was the t unjust taking of a human life. And I can give you all sorts of quotes. But of course, if anyone goes and reads my writing, then they know all these right, things. But right, right. I mean, like just one quick example is Victoria Woodhill. And I use her because she was not a religious at all. She was, in fact, a very, very right. radical thinker, first woman to run for president, advocate, um, ardent advocate for co of constitutional equality for women. And she champions the rights of children as part of her what she's you know doing in her advocacy and she says rights then begin while they remain the fetus and there's all sorts of language right. um she says that you know it's just as much a murder to destroy life in its embryonic condition and she gives us really like the most cogent pro-life argument there is as she says as it is um it is the self-same life that is taken both yeah. after and before yeah. right so they knew this, right? And so they saw it both right. as an unjust um, ending of, of, you know, the child's life to whom they knew that mothers and fathers owed duties of care. But then they also believed that when you, you know, separate sex from reproduction, that you're going to right. embolden men um, to, you know, lean into, empower them with this sexual prerogative um, to assume that they can just have intercourse with women, whether they're married to them or otherwise. And so this is the kind of insight that entirely, entirely falls away um, with the second wave. So first you have, again, Margaret Sanger, who right. is pro-contraception, anti-abortion. She, too, views abortion as the right. unjust taking of human oh, life. That interesting. Yeah. So she too, I mean, part of her work is trying to prevent what were then illegal abortions because she saw them as dangerous to women, but also she talks about that they are, you know, um, that they are the killing of a child, you know, so she gets it too. I mean, it's the scientific reality again that we got a long, long time ago. So then she's trying to push forward contraception in order to prevent abortion. And same with the population control movement early on. So you have, um, you know, yeah. people trying to push for contraception in order to, as a prophylactic to abortion. Then you have this problem, though, because what contraception does is, you know, increase sexual risk taking both inside marriage, but then also outside right. marriage. So you have this skyrocketing of out of wedlock births. And you especially have them among um, populations that the population control movement being, you know, in part a eugenic movement was not particularly eager to have more, say, black babies being born. And so right. then there's this push for abortion. OK, so that's where legal abortion comes in. Also, you know, doctors trying to um, uh, make sure that they were, um, um, you know, kind of as we're hearing doctors today worried about being prosecuted for what was then what were then called therapeutic abortions, abortions to save in medical emergencies to save the life of women. So there were some anyway. So that's where we get Roe v. Wade. Right. It's not a woman centered opinion, um, but it really allows abortion to become the centerpiece of of, you know, what is then kind of understood as women's liberty as we move on, because then they can have this what then becomes understood as kind of full control over their reproduction, even though. They're the ones having abortions. They're the ones taking the pill that sometimes isn't effective, right? 
they're the ones right. having, a, having to um, then have out of wedlock um, births and be abandoned by men who don't think that childbearing is part of the equation anymore because, hey, abortion is available, right? So, right. and they're the ones who are then entering the workplace um, in, you know, a workplace that doesn't change to accommodate women right. who might, you know, be pregnant or bear children because, hey, you've got the pill and abortion. So why don't you guys control this stuff? And, you know, children are really then begin to be understood as purely an affirmative choice. And yeah. so you don't have any workplace, you know, you don't have a f fast movement to accommodate, um, accommodate women in the workplace, right. And, and their motherhood anyway. So then as we move along, you know, coherent, when you think of, you know, it, it, it was very politically savvy for like a Bill Clinton to talk about abortion as safe, legal, and rare. Right. I mean, that was the winning argument for most <laughs> Americans, right. They kind of thought, okay, maybe there are ways in which, yeah. you know, they weren't fully, 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 um, um, uh, convinced of may maybe the full pro-life position that, you know, human rights are, you know, by virtue of being human, the unborn child is human at the very early stages, you know, so there was some sense of like, like maybe abortion is necessary in some cases. Okay. But then you do have this way in which the feminist movement starts to really lean into this idea. Well, wait a second, you know, if abortion, if there's nothing like if abortion is necessary sometimes, why do we want to say it's only necessary? And we think that women should be the ones, right, in the consultation with their doctor, as Rose said, to be the ones who determine whether they should bring this child, you know, to birth. Well, then maybe we ought to be, you know, talking about it as this positive good that does a good thing in women's lives. It allows them to be kind of equal participants in the workplace. It allows them to basically, you know, have consequence-free sex just like men. And so, yeah, you have like a Catholic, Catholic uh, is that how you say, poet um, talking, you know, she she publishes a book called Pro. Like, look, we need to be right. all in. And then you have movements to shout your abortion. And you really do. When I was down at the Supreme Court outside of the Dobbs, um, you know, oral argument, the, this generation of women, your generation of, of pro-choicers, are very pro-abortion so I think they, you know, so yeah. the signs I saw were things like abortion abundance. Um, and there's kind of a, a cavalier attitude toward it. And it's so, you know, the way it's not your grandmother's pro-choice movement is, is the best way to right. say it. Um, and that's going to be a problem for them, I think. I really do think that it's kind of grotesque in a lot of ways to not be able to understand, you know, not be able to make um any type of, and you see in the Dobbs descent, there's no sense that there should be any time in the pregnancy when, um, when fetal life is understood to, to have value. Um, so yeah, I think that's going to be a problem for them. Interesting. There's so many interesting places to go from there. Um, but I guess I'm wondering if you can talk me through more a little bit, kind of what Roe did both legally, but but also sociologically, uh, because there's sort of an abundance of commentary about the legal side of it right now. But it seems like the legal side has also really impacted the way that people viewed abortion and then in turn, the way that people viewed sex. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would just say more about the way in which the, you know, abortion backed contraceptive revolution, which we know as the sexual revolution, really frees up um, uh, any sense that sex has consequences. 
Right. And so there's this way in which they there's an assumption that when you have sex. So like when you if you were to go and like eat anything you wanted, you kind of know that you could gain yeah. weight. You could get, you know, if you ate every sugary thing you want, maybe you get diabetes. You know, there's all sorts of ways in which we know that that um, passion. Right. Or that and that appetite. That's um an important part of human existence has consequences. And so we've always understood in terms of human history that sex has these consequences that we're responsible for and that these consequences are asymmetrical, right? That women yeah. and men engage in the same sexual act, but it's women who get pregnant, but also are the ones due to different, the different hormones that tend to have more connectivity after sex. So because you know, oxytocin is released and um, works with estrogen, the female hormone, there's this, you know, it's the love hormone, right? And so there's this connection that women feel. Now, again, like that can start to dissipate in women who have a lot of casual sex. I get it. Right. And men too have a connection after sex, but it is not nearly as, as rampant. And because of testosterone, their impetus, if they're not disciplined in their in their appetites is to go for um, casual sex, to go for uncommitted sex, right? They really need to discipline that appetite um, because of how strong testosterone shapes male libido, you know? Yeah. So, so I guess, you know, abortion just abortion and the sexual revolution just really frees up these, you know, male, um, uh, prerogatives. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, the way I sort of think about it is like Catherine McKinnon is one of these um, really important figures in feminism who um, ends up doing what those early women's rights advocates wanted in terms of what they called voluntary motherhood, which was the right to say no to sex. It sounds kind of like, right. oh, the inverse of forced uh, motherhood, but they did not believe that women should be able to take end the lives of their own children, but they did believe that women should have control over their own bodies, which meant right. control over when they had sex, right? Control over, as Sarah Grimpy put it, all preliminaries. So, so you know, so, so there was no, no understanding of like marital rape until um, 1980s, 1990s. And this is in part due to Catherine McKinnon. So she and others at that time really push to, you know, equalize, you know, uh, give women rights in marriage um, uh, to, you know, criminal law then then recognizes this kind of um, undoes this institutionalized male sexual prerogative. But my argument, which really leans on McKinnon in some ways, is that sexual revolution really um, reinstitutionalizes <laughs> the male sexual prerogative culturally, at least, you know, and so men have this idea that they, you know, the way that, of course, our friend Mark Regnerys talks about it in his great book, Cheap Sex, is that there's like sex becomes very low cost. And so men assume that they can have it at any time. Um, and there's no need, um, you know, to become the kind of man that a woman would want to marry, that a woman would want to have children with. Like there's no there's no longer any reason right. to do that. Um, and so I think, you know, we start to then reshape all our relationships along this um, this kind of line. And is it good for relationships? No, not at all. You know? <laughs> when, you know, lots of sex before marriage ends up not being so good for marriage, for the commitment and the, the kind of vulnerability, sexual vulnerability too, that's necessary 
in marriage, but then for sexual pleasure within marriage, you know, it, it really, um, when you give yourself away that many times before marriage, it makes that kind of beautiful commitment in marriage, much more difficult, um, much more difficult to sustain, much more difficult to enjoy, um, which is a real pity. And I, you know, I think women learn this too late because they kind of buy into the, what the culture has told them about sex. And I think, I think that that's unfortunate, you know, that there are, that the wisdom of these earlier, um, women, um, uh, you know, we should heed it. And yeah. um, and I think you're seeing this. I really do believe that there's going to be, and I'm seeing it just from friends across the Atlantic and from people here, new women who are rising up to basically say, we need a new women's movement that that um, really, yeah. really demands that, men's, that men discipline their sexual desires um, and that we reorient it, reorient sex around uh, around the female body rather than the male body because women are the ones who are having um, who, who, you know, have the burdens of, um, of, of sex far more. And also, of course, the great privilege of having children. Um, but, and, and that was that kind of idea of like a Sarah Grimke who said women should control all preliminaries. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I want to ask, uh, one more question kind of about sort of more directly about the abortion issue, uh, because it seems like the way it's been discussed, there's just been this absolute outpouring of, to use a, another sort of tired phrase, internet misinformation. <laughs> um, and people are really worked up about things like ectopic pregnancies and pregnancies as a result of rape or abuse. And it's like hard to open any social media app without seeing stories in which, for example, doctors are only allowed to save a woman's life because she showed up at the hospital 10 minutes before midnight when the state ban went into effect or women who have to cross state lines to get a treatment for a miscarriage and things like that. Um, I- I'm wondering, just for our listeners in general, um, if you have any advice about, you know, what the, I mean, how to sort truth from fiction on these matters and, and any kind of insight on what the actual situation is on the ground right now in terms of uh, the status of, of abortion and birth control on these kinds of issues. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the question that was taken up by the court, right? When the Supreme Court takes up a, takes up a case, they always yeah. are answering a particular question, and the question is about elective abortion. So in Mississippi, in that statute, right, um, they specifically are asking whether elective abortions, whether the state can regulate pre viability elective abortions. So in the words of you know again those reform right. movements, they're not talking about therapeutic abortion. Now that particular word is kind of uh, that phrase is kind of out of favor among pro-life doctors, I would say, because um, the way they want to define abortion, which I think is, you know, in keeping with the way Planned Parenthood defines abortion, the way, you know, the um, American um, College of, of Obstetricians and Gynecologists um, uh, defines abortion is that is, you know, the intentional ending of I don't know that, the, you know, ACOG says this, but the ending of, of um, uh, you know, the unborn child's life, right? It is an intentional ending of the life for non-therapeutic reasons. In other words, you're not dealing with a medical emergency situation in which the woman's life is in danger. You're dealing with a purely elective decision for all sorts of other reasons that aren't health or life right. related, right? So when right. it comes to these right. other cases, then doctors manage them as they manage, you know, as they always manage them, which is that if a woman comes in and she has an ectopic pregnancy, that there are um, 
that there are ways in which, I mean, I think every, all the listeners would know, but like ectopic pregnancies do endanger a woman's life, right? Cause you're the, the, the embryo has implanted in a fallopian tube right. and cannot grow there to become, um, you know, even a fetus, right? <laughs> it just, it will, um, rupture, uh, right. the woman's, um, you know, the fallopian tube and cause her all sorts of damage, um, and, and can be life, life threatening. And so there are ways in which, um, the embryo needs to be removed. Um, and that is, you're not, you know, ending the embryo's life as an elective procedure, you're saving the woman's life. Like that's the intention when you go and do it. And so in the statutes, right. and, and I think, you know, would it be smart if state legislatures do what like Texas does, which is, I think it's Texas, some others. I'm actually looking at this really great um, piece just to bring up sort of some of the language on SCOTUS blog by uh, attorney um, Elizabeth Kirk and Dr. Ingrid Skop, I think it's happy to put that in the show notes. Yeah. By the way. Yeah. So it's called why the Dobbs decision would imperil pregnancy related medical care. And, and what they do is they bring up some of the actual language of the statutes, because I think it's really important for people to, to go and look at the language where, you know, whether it's Louisiana, Oklahoma, Texas, like they um, ensure that these kinds of important life-saving um, mm. medical care for women are either excluded entirely from what they're talking about, or they have provisions that um, right. allow abortion in the case of a life-threatening um, situation. So whether or not, I mean, there's all sorts of, you know, different pro-life doctors right. sometimes who don't even use the word abortion because abortion is understood as elective abortion. I don't know that that's right. the best way to go about it. I think it's a bit confusing, but I'm not a doctor. So um, I think it's helpful to just <laughs> differentiate between ectopic, or sorry, um, elective and therapeutic. That is medically necessary um, in a medical emergency, the kinds of things, um, the act that is done, even if the intention is entirely different. Totally. I think um, those are, you know, entirely um, allowed and important and that doctors, you know, so what I've heard is a lot of pushback of like, look, doctors are going to have to go and talk to their lawyers first. And that's just not the truth. Like, I mean, they may maybe should talk to their doc, their lawyers right, right now to understand. But like when they're in a situation, they don't have to go talk to lawyers. They just treat the woman and save her life. Right. Um, right. And and I think, you know, right. to not do so um, is medical malpractice. And every OBGYN knows that. And so. You know, are there always yeah. risks when you're making decisions about women's lives and the second patient, the unborn child? Sure, there's always risks. I mean, but um, but you have to you have to make a, um, a a medical decision that's coherent with medical practice, and that's and that's what you know pro life pro life doctors do in Catholic um, hospitals, and um, and so yeah, uh, you know, you treat you treat the medical condition. I have so many more questions I could ask you, Erica, but I know that we are starting to run up against the clock here. So just as one kind of final note, um, I we sort of already talked about uh, where abortion has come from, uh, but I think everyone kind of on the right and the left views the post-Roe world as a new era. Uh, and I'm wondering where you think it's going to go from here and how abortion is going to slot in, uh, because it seems like within the right, um, there's kind of been, you know, there, there, there's the right is not united on this issue. You know, people are, are kind of discussing the idea that like a bro conservative like David Portnoy and the Barstool types might in some way be the future of the right and are celebrating people who are definitely very pro-choice and not very social conservative, like Elon Musk changing sides. Um, 
And even within the feminist movement itself, um, to call yourself a feminist implies subscribing to a particular orthodoxy. Um, so I'm wondering how you think uh, the battle lines are going to be drawn in the future in terms of the, the role that the pro-life movement is going to play within the right and within feminism as a whole. Is, is there a future for pro-life feminism? Is there a future for pro-life feminism? Well, I would say yes. You know, it's the only future. <laughs> I think it's the only future for pro-lifers and for feminism. So, yeah. you know, I mean, I, yeah, I think yeah, that's, yeah. it's really the only way to go. Um, and so that's where I see, you know, whether or not a new women's movement uh, rises up on pro-life lines or just is able to um, to rise up on all sorts of other things and then see abortion as um, having costs, I think we'll, we'll see, you know, um, but I, I, I mean, I think the way in which, um, you know, I'm no, I, I'm, I'm not really, you know, a political talking head, but it seems to me that it makes a lot of sense to say that the GOP has relied on pro-life and social conservative votes for a long, long time. And if they still want our votes, I mean, because we can go vote for the American Solidarity Party, which I have done in the past, <laughs> um, that, um, you know, I think the need for family policy is um, is absolutely necessary. Do I worry about the right being captured by uh, those people you mentioned? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, do I hope for a political realignment? Absolutely. Um, I, um, you know, is there room in the Democratic Party for someone like me? Well, no, because the Democratic Party is entirely woke as far as I can tell. But there are Democrats, there are, you know, classical liberals, there are people who are sort of aghast at the woke turn. And so is right, there a way right, that right. some social conservatives could come together with some left-leaning kind of, um, whether it's classical liberals or people like, say, a Richard Reeves at Brookings, who really cares a lot about family policy, other people at uh, Brookings who care a lot about family policy and come and, and care about things like fatherhood and care about, right. you know, workplace accommodations. Are there ways in which we could come together um, to, to um, really do good by, um, by parents? And so is there, you know, is my vision of, um, you know, the future of what I would think to be, um, you know, the grand new party and Ross Douthat's words from, you know, his, the title of his book um, many decades ago, but is like a parent party, you know, is that the winning coalition? Absolutely. Um, is the right going to be smart to that? Well, I sure hope so. You know, I mean, I, um, I think to know, to see, to see that upper left quadrant, you know, which has sort of these social conservatives with more moderate, um, people economically who are um, willing to, you know, to see kind of the way in which um, industrialization, globalization, um, technology, uh, you know, double income earners, uh, the wealth disparity, like all these things, um, you know, the, the, the stagnation of working class wages, um, the kind of um, way in which working class people don't have good work, have, you know, uh, have really been put upon by their employers with things like just in time scheduling with no workplace accommodations. Like there's a way in which we can answer these things. They're not all that difficult to answer. And it doesn't require tons and tons of spending or something it does require some spending. And that's OK, I think, because it's for the sake of families. It's for the, for you know, moving toward a more pro-natalist, pro-family orientation. I think that's really important. Um, so, I mean, I would, I guess, commend to 
to people uh, a piece I wrote that is both historical and policy oriented for American Compass very um, recently called Pursuing the Reunification of Home and Work, um, in which I sort of go, um, I really think that we're kind of stuck in this kind of post-industrial way of thinking about um, home and work, and we just really haven't um, gotten by this idea of either having a breadwinner caregiver kind of you know, um, the, the, the rights response or having breadwinner, breadwinner, um, and which is also not a great response. And right. so no one is at home. No one is doing the work of caregiving when I think parents really want to be doing that, really want to be investing in their families more. Generationally speaking, this is true, both of women and men. So, um, how can we facilitate that? How can we remove the boulders? Um, how can we, and, you know, I would really commend people to, the communitarian movement um, of the 1990s, where, um, you know, they had a parent, they had a um, family policy platform that I think could be, you know, resurrected today. Um, that was really, really good. Marion Glendon was one of the people who really articulated a lot of that. I think it's still just as good today. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just like, I think that, it, you know, and I, this will be my last word, but I think that a, um, political society really ought to be um, creating the conditions for, you know, kind of just peaceable, um, humane conditions for people to carry out their responsibilities to one another, mothers and fathers, employers and employees, friends, citizens, that that those duties of care that we undertake to one another are, are really crucial to any healthy society and that the duties of care in the family are kind of the bedrock, right? That first institution. And so we need to be finding ways politically, economically, civilly to be really shoring up support for that primary institution. And so getting together with people of goodwill on both left and right, um, I think is of, um, of great import right now. And there are already conversations starting. I'm already having conversations with people um, on both sides of the aisle. So um, that's, that's where I see, um, I hope for the future of of um, at least the right in our in our country, but but you know who knows what will happen. <laughs> Erica, it's been such a joy, and I will include that excellent op-ed of yours in the show notes as well for our listeners. But thank you so much for taking the time. It's been really really interesting to hear from you. Thank you. Well, there you have it, Madisonians. Dr. Erica Bakioki on feminism, abortion, and her recent book, The Rights of Women: Reclaiming a Lost Vision. The link to both her excellent book and the op-ed we mentioned in the podcast are in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope to see you next time here on Madison's Notes.